Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Today, we interview once again Dr. Dilemba an excision surgeon who's been in private practice in Denton, Texas, since 1986. For the past 20 years, he's been testing the hormone receptors of endometriosis lesions. Today, we discuss his findings and thoughts on endometriosis and hormones. Dr. Delemba also joined us in episode 106 to speak about robotic excision surgery, and additionally, episode 109 to talk about adhesions and endometriosis. If you missed those episodes, please check them out. I'd also like to thank Kate from Endo Girls blog for brainstorming with me the interview questions that I asked Dr. Delumba today. Hi, Dr. Delumba. Thank you so much for joining us again for the third time on our podcast here to talk about hormone receptors for endometriosis. You're testing endometriosis for hormone receptors. So can you tell us about what you've been doing, how long, et cetera? Sure. And and this is something I've been doing for a long time, coming up on two decades. And and originally, it wasn't even my idea. Mr. Jeremy Wright from the UK, who's semi-retired, he's still doing a few things over there. We were sitting in his backyard one day, and he mentioned this. And it really resonated and clicked into my head like, oh, my gosh, this makes sense. Because since I've been in medicine, I was taught that endometriosis grows with estrogen. That's what everybody's taught. Everybody, every doctor, patient, neighbor, hairdresser, you name it. And everybody says estrogen is the culprit for endometriosis. Well, the only thing is when I really started to focus on endometriosis in the early 90s, mid 90s, Things that I was told didn't seem to hold up, including giving birth control pills for endometriosis. Yeah, some patients got symptom relief, but the disease was still there and horrible at some points. And, you know, and then I, I see that, that patients have PMS, which is the progesterone hormone. I'm like, okay, some of these things aren't matching up. And all of a sudden, then along came a lot of data on breast cancer. Besides my friend, Mr. Jeremy Wright, and what I saw on on the breast cancer data, I'm like, I think this is something that needs to be looked at. So I said, okay, why don't I get estrogen and progesterone receptors on the specimens I cut out? And that's what I've been doing. What's fascinating is what I found. It turns out that the majority of the receptors that I find are positive for both estrogen and progesterone. The next most common number is progesterone only, no estrogen receptors. The next most common number, and I don't have the exact percentage like they do in those studies, 
but it's it's still a low number, very low, is no receptors. It's endometriosis, but there's no estrogen and progesterone receptors. And the last one is estrogen only. I do see it, but it's really rare, really rare. So the most fascinating thing out of this besides that is in the same patient, in different areas, different receptors. So it's not the same, you know, like you take a patient, cut out all the specimens and they go, oh, it's all the same. No, it's different. This one could have both over here. Specimen B could be progesterone only. Specimen E, no receptors. And specimen F is progesterone only. It's fascinating. Now, I was at the World Congress of Endometriosis, and we've seen some of this data before that, but there's more and more information coming out saying that there are different DNA makeup in the same patient in different areas of endometriosis, which would go along with exactly what my data is showing, but I don't think anybody is doing DNA and hormone receptors at the same time to see if there's any correlation. So it's not the same disease in the same patient. And that's why, you know, so many doctors and many of our experts say it's retrograde menstruation. Like, I'm sorry, these dead cells coming through the fallopian tubes do not turn into zombie cells and change their DNA. They just don't do it. Well, so I want to be clear that you do not believe that retrograde menstruation is the cause of endometriosis. No, I do not believe in retrograde menstruation is the cause of endometriosis because I've had patients born without a uterus that have endometriosis and there's men with endometriosis and we don't have retrograde menstruation. And there's patients that have pain from their first cycle on and they haven't had retrograde menstruation yet. So it's just fascinating that we don't understand some of this. Now, some, some arguments have come up, even with one of the pathologists, that's the alpha portion of estrogen that has to be checked. And sometimes it can show up negative. That doesn't make sense to me. An estrogen positive receptor seems like it's going to be an estrogen receptor positive. But to watch many doctors, you know, or studies or whatever you want to call it, go through all these permutations to try and explain why avoiding estrogen and giving progesterone doesn't seem to help a lot of patients. Because they'll go, oh, it's progesterone resistance. I'm like, no, it's not resistance. Maybe there's just no estrogen receptors. It just, <laughs> I mean, so you're giving progesterone, which may make this disease grow. And then there's like, oh, well, okay, well, maybe it's not progesterone resistance. Maybe that the endometriosis cells themselves are making estrogen through aromatization. Well, that can happen. I'm not saying it can't happen, but now we're saying Every cell of endometriosis does this? Come on. That's, that's insanity to think that every single cell of it is going to do that, which then means that every patient in menopause with no hormones, their disease is still going to grow no matter what. It might, but there's something that can grow without receptors. You have to remember 25% of breast cancers had no estrogen progesterone receptors. My data is a lot less than 25%, probably more like 3%. But it's still the disease can grow without any hormone receptors at all. So, again, we have to find a reason why things don't work. But you're starting off with the premise that it's estrogen, and then you try to build a case around it. 
That's a house of cards. It's going to collapse. If all we had to do was avoid estrogen, then every single of our, one of our patients would be better if we didn't give it. Before I went to the World Congress of Endometriosis, I was texting a good friend of mine. We were talking about thoracic endometriosis. He has a huge gathering of data on thoracic endometriosis. And he goes, I'm seeing something really unusual. He says, I've been giving progesterone to some of my patients with thoracic endometriosis and it's making the lungs collapse more. He, well, he, he just said it's making it worse, but that meant that it was collapsing. And he says, I think that it's shrinking the disease and making it collapse. And I'm like, no. <laughs> I said, if you were doing the receptor information like I, like I do, and I've talked to him about it before, he just doesn't want to hear it, that maybe in that circumstance, giving the progesterone may actually stimulate the disease more. And you're seeing more lung collapse as that these diseases growing. He just doesn't want to believe it. He, he wants to believe that giving progesterone will shrink the disease. Therefore, the lung is collapsing versus it might actually be stimulating. So this is what we're working with. What we're dealing with is patients and doctors are just thinking of estrogen. That's it. And if it really worked, that'd be great. But I think it's actually almost to ACOG, in my opinion, is almost a malpractice to use birth control pills in an endometriosis patient. Because by giving them birth control pills as a first-line treatment, you might be potentially making it worse for that patient and stimulating the disease. I don't know. I can't tell you how many bowel resections I've done, and they've been on continuous birth control pills since they were 16. Now, they might feel better with symptoms. It's just so sad to see it. Yeah, your symptoms are better. But now the disease is everywhere. I hope that's like a thumbnail sketch of what I think and what I believe. So basically, you got the idea to test the estrogen and progesterone receptors and endometriosis from looking at data on breast cancer and from seeing that with breast cancer, not every breast cancer has estrogen receptors, progesterone, or both. Some, some actually have no receptors in them. So I want to back up even further for a minute and just say what a hormone receptor is. So my understanding as a non-doctor, non-scientific person is basically like a hormone receptor is kind of like a baseball glove in the tissue and the hormone is the baseball, right? So like the baseball of estrogen gets thrown to the estrogen receptor, the hormone receptor, which is the glove and, and it catches it. And then basically when the hormone is in the receptor, it causes the cell to have certain biological activity. That's absolutely correct. And you used estrogen, but the same thing will happen with progesterone. The same thing happens in the pituitary gland with estrogen goes and blocks receptors. People ovulate or this vice versa. If there's not enough estrogen in the pituitary gland, then the pituitary gland puts out FSH, follicle stimulating hormone, and tell the ovary to grow an egg. Okay. So there's receptors throughout our whole body for different things. I just want people to know that it's not just estrogen and progesterone receptors that are out. Absolutely. Thank you for clarifying that. So a couple of questions. So you talked about endometriosis and how when you're looking at the different receptors, even in the same patient, you're seeing that like, let's say you looked at my endometriosis, 
well, let's say you took 10 specimens from my body. Some could have estrogen receptor only, some progesterone only, some have none, some have both. So we're seeing that within the same patient, it's not like I have only estrogen receptors and maybe this other patient named Jessica has only progesterone and you're seeing that within each patient, there's a variety of hormone receptors within their endometriosis, which goes back to highlight something that we're learning. I think we need more research into is that endometriosis really is a heterogeneous disease. You know, it is not a homogenous disease where the disease has the same presentation, not even from patient to patient, but not even within the same patient, right? So it's going way beyond the there's three forms of endometriosis, superficial, deep infiltrating, and endometrioma. There's, you know, even further, we're seeing that there's different biological activity, different hormone receptors, things like that. So some researchers are saying that there's at least 65 phenotypes of endometriosis. So what do you think about this idea? I would agree. I, I don't know about the specific number, whether it's 65, 75, 55. 20, I don't know, but it's not the same disease in the same, even sometimes the same area of a patient because they can have an individual cell or it can be yellow, clear, white, blisters, pocketing. And then to think that all of that is exactly the same is, you know, like believing in the retrograde menstruation theory. You know, it, it just doesn't make sense that it would be the same. And now we have DNA studies showing that it is different. So that would go along with different DNA, can maybe have a different phenotypic appearance and even have a different receptor status. So it's all matching up. The, the sad part of all of this is we really don't know how the disease gets there, okay? We certainly don't know what makes it grow. We can still bury our head in the sand and say estrogen does it. So we don't know what makes it grow. We don't know how it gets there. How are we ever going to hope to make our patients as good as we can without those things, without that knowledge? And I think that really goes to show how indoctrinated so many people, and by people, I mean, like, it could be doctors, could be researchers, just the medical community at large, the textbooks, et cetera, how indoctrinated as the medical community has been in these ideas that endometriosis is from retrograde menstruation, which we know it's not or endometriosis, estrogen is what makes endometriosis grow. So, you know, put your patient into menopause or cut out those ovaries or wait till natural menopause and then your patient will be fine. And it's like, no, my God, like, no. And this just really highlights, like we need to let go of what we think we know and we need to start thinking outside of the box and like having more research reflect and there are researchers and there are doctors like you, like Dr. Redwine, like there are others who, you know, are thinking outside of the box and are doing this research, but the numbers are so few compared to like the studies that are just churning out things about retrograde menstruation. <laughs> so it's just, yeah. Like I said, I, I find it fascinating that there are cells of endometriosis that have no receptors. I find that the most fascinating, just like breast cancer. In a, in a smaller percentage than 25%, because it's not that common. It's more common than estrogen only, which is the fascinating part. I thought that would be maybe after both or after progesterone, but no, it's the least likely. But here's another interesting thing. 
because we were actually checking five cells instead of just endometriosis. Because if a lot of the studies look at just endometriosis, which comprises glandular cells and stromal cells, and the pathologist has to see both. But if it's just glands, it's still endometriosis, in my opinion. If it's just stromal cells, it's still endometriosis, in my opinion. But the other two cell lines were mesothelial cells and stromal cells. And sometimes they have hormone receptors. I showed a couple other experts this, and they were fascinated, and we were going to try and do a study, a prospective study, but then COVID hit, and you know, nobody talked to anybody. <laughs> it was just, it was crazy. But theoretically, those two cell lines should not be hormonal. Somebody could argue maybe the mesothelial cells. And could these be precursors to glands and stromal cells? I don't know. Some scientist needs to look at that, not a guy that's a decent surgeon. Okay. <laughs> so could that be why when you cut out endometriosis and all of a sudden, sometimes it'll be in the same area again? I'm like, I got all that out. How could it be there? So there's so many things that you can then investigate and follow and look at when we get the receptors. The biggest thing out of all of this is, what do you do postoperatively? This might give you somewhat of a guide in how to treat this patient postoperatively with any hormonal treatment that this patient may opt for. No matter how good of a surgeon is, we can miss a cell. And so if, at least if you have a guide versus just assuming it's estrogen, what if there's no estrogen receptors? It's all progesterone. And you give progesterone, you might be potentially making it worse for that patient. I don't know. Somebody needs to do more studies. And they do have some studies, by the way. About five or six years ago, out of Brussels, they it was only 42 patients and deep invasive endometriosis. And they found the same thing that I'm talking about now. Different hormone receptors in different areas in the same patient. And they were only looking at deep invasive endometriosis instead of around the entire body. So it's out there. It's out there, but nobody wants to do it because what if we find out that we shouldn't be giving birth control pills to the majority of patients because it's estrogen and progesterone receptors and their own hormones make estrogen, progesterone, the cyclic banner, which might even be worse. I don't know, but they sit there and blame estrogen is not fair to these people whose lives are so interfered. My first question is, you mentioned that your pathologist looks for the glands and the stroma. So I was wondering, what is your diagnostic criteria for endometriosis? Because um, I know that in some cases they can say, okay, it's glands and stroma, or in others, it's two out of three, um, the three being glands, stroma, or hemosiderin-laden macrophages. So, you know, the tissue has to have at least two of those to be considered endometriosis. So what is your pathologist's diagnostic criteria for endometriosis? Well, they may not call it endometriosis, but for me, if I see glands where they're not supposed to be, or I see stromal cells where they're not supposed to be, that's still endometriosis to me. I mean, there's even a diagnosis code of stromal endometriosis. I know from time they had to say, oh, it's both. But was that because of the retrograde menstruation thinking of the lining of the uterus? I don't know. All I know is it's like a, like, a splinter, you know, <laughs> it needs to get out of there and be cut. 
even if it's responsive to hormones specifically it needs to be out even if it's not it's still going to grow and cause a problem so whether it's stromal cells glands or both it's still endometriosis hemocytorin I always look at it, and if it's just hemocytorin, it might be something else. Like if somebody was, something was bleeding, I have cut out large areas that had hemocytorin in it. You could just see it and not real glands of endometriosis. And there's been times when there was no glands or stroma and no, no hormonal receptor changes to those cells. But occasionally I will see a cell of either glands or stroma in there. There's also... I don't test for it, but there's another test called CD10, which is actually specific for endometriosis stromal cells. I don't specifically do that one. So that's another another test that could be done for endometriosis. So I, I look at it that pathologists have their own criteria and I have mine because if I look at something and I think it's endometriosis or even suspicious of endometriosis, I'm cutting it out and it can just come back as fibrosis. Well, what caused the fibrosis? <laughs> what caused that healing aspect in there? But um, so in that circumstance, if there's no hormone receptors, it's just fibrosis. I'm thinking that there might have been something there that the body got rid of and then it healed and there's fibrosis, but no evidence of, of any glands or stroma there. So that I wouldn't call that endometriosis, but it certainly probably might have been in the past, but the immune system might have gotten rid of themselves. Yeah, I think about on like my pathology report, I think there were 10 specimens and like eight said endometriosis and then two said like this tissue has characteristics of endometriosis, but lacks glands for diagnosis or something like that. So, so you said that, you know, when you test for the receptors, you take the tissue and you test it. And then you're also like testing tissue that is mesenchymal cells. Tell me again, what tissue you test for the receptors. So if you have a specimen, just like my, my shirt here. Well, that's right. That's not visual. Well, it's your a, shirt has an emblem on it. Right. So if you say that that emblem is endometriosis, so you have to cut it out. That's called excision. But I like the word cut it out. But you have to take some normal tissue with it and then elevate it and then go as deep as you need to go to, to normal tissue. And then you remove it. And then we send that entire specimen to be checked. Now, there's going to be segments of that that are normal. This is the peritoneum. It's going to be normal. And some fat cells and some other things in there, inflammatory cells. There's going to be a lot of things in there, sometimes a blood vessel. But sometimes I think it might be endometriosis and cut it out, and it may come back as just mesothelial cells that might have hormone receptors or just fibroblasts. So fibroblasts are sometimes part of the, the scaffolding of healing so again theoretically fibroblasts should not have hormonal receptors in them but you know they sometimes do but not my the newer newer pathologists weren't checking for that my old lab would and like i said they came up with the five cell lines not me you know they they actually put it in a graph the same graph you would have for breast cancer so they had the specimen and then where it came from, whether it's like the left pelvic sidewall, right pelvic sidewall, the diaphragm, you name it. And then they would have, whether it was estrogen or progesterone positive, then they would have the percentage staining on there. And then they would have the intensity. Of course, 
patient said, well, what does that mean? I went, I don't know. I'm not a pathologist. So I went to my pathologist and I said, so what does this mean? She goes, I don't know. <laughs> but I looked it up and it's on that breastcancer.org page on receptors. It goes into detail, but it's the intensity, how it takes up that stain. Now, how I've extrapolated from that, I know I've gotten off your question, but, <laughs> but how I've extrapolated from that is that in my mind, it has a greater response to that hormone. So if it's a low intensity, yeah it, it, yeah, it has positive receptors, but they're not responding well. Whereas if it's like plus four, which I think is the maximum, it's either zero, one, two, three, or four, I think, uh, maybe no zero. But that means it's really, really reacting to that, to that stain that they put in there. I found that the majority, if it was both, that the intensity for estrogen and progesterone receptors in one specimen are either the same or a greater response, higher intensity for the progesterone. It's fascinating. Again, I don't know what that means, but it's got to mean something because it's there. <laughs> what I take from it, and again, I might be totally wrong, is that progesterone may have worse of an effect on this disease than we've ever, ever thought about. And again, it's the PMS hormone. So um, I know I did get away from the fibroblast and the mesothelial cells. So I didn't come up with that. I just saw it on the report. So they would then report that. They didn't re report that, oh, here's normal skin. You know, normal skin, the peritoneum is not going to be taking hormone receptors on. Just not. So a question for you. How do you know or how do your pathologists know when they check for the hormone receptor within that tissue of the endometriosis specimen, how do they know that they didn't miss the receptor? Like, how do they, they have certainty that this tissue, like if they test it and they're like, oh, there's no receptors here, they have certainty that this tissue does not have receptors or is it possible to miss the receptors? I don't think it's possible to miss. In fact, I think it might actually get a greater yield because when they look, with their eyes for glands or stroma, that might be missed. When they put the stains on there, these special stains, that's harder to miss. So you will see a greater yield of a diagnosis of endometriosis if you do the receptors. And so the other thing, and this is in addition to your question right there, because I, 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 don't, I don't go in and look, and I, I guess maybe I should have, so I would be able to answer that question better. But when we talk about the treatment of endometriosis, one of the keys to this disease is cutting it out. We talked about this before, that some doctors are blinked, okay? And they think they have a good outcome. The problem is, if we really understand this disease and go, you can't just burn it. We, can't, we don't want to burn breast cancer cells because we want to see what the receptors are so we can adequately treat this patient properly. And the same thing, if it's the same throughout the whole body, that patient, the endometriosis receptors, that's great. You can just cut one piece and send it. This way, this is almost a mandate. Yes, you get better outcomes pain-wise by removing the disease surgically, excising it. But now if you say, I need to know what the hormonal status of this individual patient is, because now the DNA is different, the hormone receptors are different, this is a different disease throughout that whole abdomen. I can't just burn it. I need to cut it out and then send it to the pathologist 
and then potentially use that as a guide to treat this patient post-surgically. Doesn't mean you're doing it right or wrong, but it's a better guide than just assuming let's avoid estrogen. When you test for the, the receptors, so with estrogen and progesterone, there's different types. So for example, there's progesterone receptor A and progesterone receptor B. Um, so do you just test for progesterone receptor in general, or do you test for figuring out if it's the A or B receptor? We were just doing it, no A and B. We just did estrogen progesterone. But again, whether it's alpha or beta, that if there's receptors there, then it's going to be stimulated. If there's no receptors, if there's no, if there's no response to an estrogen receptor, how is it going to be A or B? It's just not, in my opinion. So, yeah, maybe one's more, more effective or more of an impact on this disease that we need to pay more attention to. You know, it's great that we're, we're you know, funneling down to, to what might be the cause, but it's so bad that we're funneling down, but maybe it's not estrogen as the culprit completely. There's other things, progesterone, no hormones. What are we doing when there's no estrogen or progesterone receptors? Now, if I did a study, a prospective study, yeah, we would have to break it down into alpha and beta. But even, we might even get even more confusing information from that. But we can't just sit back and say it's estrogen. We just cannot until the until the experts in endometriosis and then the medical schools and the residencies start doing this. We're still going to just believe estrogen is the culprit. So it sounds like you're just testing for the physical presence of the receptor in the tissue, but you're not testing to see what happens when the receptor is activated. You're correct. But if there's no estrogen receptors, not going to have an impact. If there's no receptors of estrogen or progesterone, what you know, hormones aren't going to make a difference. This disease is going to grow the same as you would see breast cancer when they don't have receptors. They're really hard to treat. They're the most difficult. It's actually called triple negatives when they don't have the, the protein, the HERS2 estrogen or progesterone receptors. That's extremely difficult to treat. So, <laughs> so when you have endometriosis, one of the ones I keep on my desk, there were two areas, the cul-de-sac and the left uterocephal ligament that were, that were endometriosis. The cul-de-sac that was endometriosis had no estrogen or progesterone receptors, and the left uterocephal ligament had no estrogen receptors but positive for progesterone. Now, would avoiding estrogen help that patient? No. <laughs> Giving progesterone, would it help that patient? Probably not. Although I thought I cut it all out. Could I have missed a cell? Yeah, I'm human. So, you know, again, you know, looking for the alpha and the beta and all these other things and what response does it have? Honestly, you know, nobody's really looking at it. They're looking at progesterone resistance. They're looking at aromatization. But nobody's looking at, could it be that progesterone is more of a culprit than we're blaming instead of saying it's the savior? Yeah, I think that's interesting how if the tissue doesn't have any hormone receptors at all, then like you said, it makes you wonder, well, then what is, what is the point of withholding estrogen as in putting the patient in um, medical menopause if this tissue doesn't even have the estrogen receptors? 
So you brought up a few times the progesterone resistance. So I wanted to comment that some studies have indicated that the progesterone expression in endometriosis is reduced and that endometriosis can have progesterone resistance, um, which means that progesterone does not induce the same changes and the same chain reactions that it normally would. So basically like when the, you know, baseball mitt catches the baseball. So when the progesterone receptor, you know, catches the progesterone, it's supposed to set off like a chain reaction and like a chemical reaction. But some studies have indicated that this doesn't happen. Um, some numbers that I've seen is like in a third of endometriosis patients could potentially have this progesterone resistance. So it's not like a every patient has this, but um, you've mentioned it a couple of times. So do you want to talk a little bit about your ideas and opinions on that? Sure. And I actually, one of the guys that did the studies, I was up in New York. We sat in the, in the backseat of an Uber together and I tried to, but it was like, you know, talking to a brick wall because he didn't want to hear what I had to say. One of the reasons they came up with the thought process of progesterone resistance is it wasn't working. So if you blame estrogen, if you start off with the pre premise that estrogen makes it grow and progesterone comes in and mutes the response or makes a better response from the estrogen, it's going gonna, it's gonna to reverse some of the effects of the estrogen. And it's not doing that. Then you have to try and find out why, right? So they're making the premise that it's going to be beneficial, but when it's not, then they go, oh, it's doing A, B, C. And when you go 30%, that's about the percentage that I see that are progesterone-only specimens. So could it be that they're blaming progesterone resistance when it's just, just progesterone-only? There may be times when they're together. You have estrogen and progesterone. Progesterone may have a beneficial effect. I'm not saying it never does. So again... You're asking questions I potentially can't answer, but I know I don't think progesterone resistance is a huge problem. I think progesterone-only specimens in that same patient are a problem, just as I mentioned about the thoracic patient that my, my friend sent me information about, the three of them, it collapsed when it just gave progesterone, because in his mind, it should help because it's countering the effects of estrogen, right? Because it suppresses ovarian function. And then there's no estrogen. So all you're getting is progesterone. Why is the lung collapsing? So he explained it because uh, it's shrinking the disease. It's doing its job. And that's why the lung's collapsing. He doesn't want to open his mind and say, hmm, maybe just giving progesterone to this, these, this cell line is making it grow worse and collapsing. One of the other things I found that I for, almost forgot to mention this is in the more advanced disease, like when I see it in the diaphragm and I see it on the bowel and I see it here, it's almost always both. Almost always. Not always, but almost always. That's why I was so surprised about that article from um, Belgium on those 42 patients that said in deep invasive endometriosis, it was, you know, different receptors in the same patient, different areas. Because when I see deep invasive endometriosis, it's the majority, almost I, I would say 90 plus percent are both. And I don't know if that is a, the disease spreads more when it's both or as the disease spreads, it changes. I don't know. And now it was only progesterone before. Now it's both. I don't know. Again, it would be hard to ever figure that out. <laughs> so again, it's potentially different disease. 
And to go along with this is my friend who I, I said with the thoracic was, was over in Singapore. And we, when I was over there, we were talking about endometriosis, which is what endometriosis people do. This is incessant about it. <laughs> we're obsessed. And he was telling me that, that these patients in Singapore had huge fibroids, severe, severe endometriosis, but very little, if no pain. So my first response is, oh, maybe it's cultural. He goes, no, they have pain, but not with this endometriosis. So at one point thought, maybe there's this is a different variant of endometriosis. It's there and it's severe, but it's not stimulating the immune response to elicit pain response. I don't know. These are so many things that should be evaluated that nobody looks at. Again, if you have a little bit of endometriosis and you continue to stimulate with hormones, if it has hormone receptors, it's going to be a lot later, in my opinion. It's going to progress. Some of the progression of pain is from adhesions, but, but some of the progression is because it does go to other areas. Now, as one of our experts thinks that you're born with all that you offer have, and it comes out over time, which still would explain, you know, that could be a, a valid theory. Because the more hormone exposure, those cells that are maybe dormant over time then get exposed. Again, that's way beyond what my meager little mind will come up with. You just mentioned that. So when you looked in your research at the deep infiltrating endometriosis, well, you said deeply invasive, but I assume it's it's synonymous. Yes, you're nodding. Yes. Okay. So when you look at the deep infiltrating endometriosis, you saw that it was more prevalent that these specimens had both estrogen and progesterone receptors. So I was wondering when you compare samples from superficial endometriomas and deep infiltrating, so the three forms of endometriosis, of course, you're, I, I assume you're seeing that they're all different depending on the patient and everything, but are you seeing any other patterns within the way the receptors show up for superficial endometriomas or deep infiltrating? Other than when it's more advanced disease, it's almost always both, including endometriomas. But no, I can't predict what what the what the receptor status is going to be based on where it's at. That would be great. Or, or other than the more advanced of the disease, and then I've been, still been fooled on that too. I'm like, oh, this is there. She's going to have both in every receptor in every area. And it turns out that it was usually progesterone or both. As I said. Having no receptors and having estrogen-only receptors is very rare. We're talking about maybe a total, if you add them all together, 3%. So the other 97% are either both or progesterone. And the majority are both. Estrogen alone is rare, rare. And of course, when I look at somebody that has both receptors and say these patients, whether it's medical, surgical, or natural menopause, and they need some hormone replacement. The world says give them progesterone, okay? Because you don't, if there's endometriosis, you don't want to stimulate it. I look at it, if I'm going to give one of those, I want to give the one that makes people feel better, which is estrogen. So yeah, they might get, if it's both, they might get a stimulation, but they might get a stimulation if I get progesterone. I mean, we see it all the time. 
my buddy with the thoracic endometriosis. It's just that he happened to see the progression because the lung collapsed. So I, when I sit down and talk to the patient, we go over and I'm like, okay, you're in menopause. Again, age, surgery, medication, and you need hormone replacement. What do you want me to give you? Because they'll look at their path report and they'll go, I'll take estrogen. There's less bone loss with estrogen. There's less heart disease with estrogen. People feel better, better lubrication, better, you know, less hair loss. I mean, it's not perfect. But that's why women and anybody in menopause take, you know, estrogen because they make it feel better. Yeah, I think that's a big conundrum for a lot of people is, you know, as we're in perimenopause, in menopause, and just feeling like absolute horror show because of a lack of um, estrogen or um, I know so many patients are afraid to take estrogen as part of their like, you know, hormone replacement therapy or their menopausal replacement therapy uh, because they're afraid that it's going to stimulate their endometriosis. And of course, each patient needs to explore that with their, you know, the pros and cons with their doctor, of course. So this isn't like medical advice. So my, my, what I want to say is that it would be great if we could have more research into the actual receptors of endometriosis, not just assuming that every single person's endometriosis is automatically stimulated by estrogen, because the truth is that, you know, as you mentioned, estrogen plays a really important function in our bodies. You know, if we're suffering with hot flashes, anxiety attacks, tachycardia, insomnia, like all kinds of symptoms of peri and menopause, not to mention if we go through menopause at a young age, like for example, surgical menopause, we get plunged into menopause, not only the symptoms, but we know that estrogen is beneficial to our cardiovascular system, to our bone health, to our brain health. So yes, it can be really hard as an endo patient because it's, I want to take estrogen, but I'm scared to take estrogen. Two things about that. The first is that any specimens that, that they had, I think they keep them. They can still be checked for estrogen progesterone receptors and CD10. You can request your, your specimens to be checked, you or anybody else. I was having my patients call this new lab and the new lab went to the, <laughs> went to the board and complained. And then the board told me to quit telling my patients to do that. But the second thing is, you know, you just mentioned about the hormonal thing and we need more research. And this is the whole thing that I've been saying all along is I might be right about what I'm talking about. I might be totally wrong. But for nobody to really have that much medical curiosity to try and help these patients that are suffering, not only just with the disease, but even post-treatment for the disease. Why isn't anybody have the heart, the desire, anything to break out of this estrogen only world that doesn't really seem to be helping that many patients. It just makes me furious. We can't tolerate this. Thank you, Dr. DeLumber, for joining us today. And before we conclude this episode, I'd like to add a few additional points. So today we discussed Dr. DeLumba's research and the presence or lack of estrogen and progesterone receptors in the endometriosis tissue he excises, but we didn't discuss what the receptors do. If you'd like to learn more about hormone receptors and the role that they play in endometriosis, I linked a few research articles in the show notes today. Additionally, in episode 57, 
my co-host Brittany and I discussed a little bit about hormone receptors in our episode, Endometriosis is Not the Endometrium, Part 2. Finally, I just wanted to add a little more information on hormone replacement therapy since we briefly touched on it today. As we mentioned, there's often a demonizing of estrogen within our community or fear of it. And so some people may have concerns about taking estrogen as part of hormone replacement therapy because they're worried that estrogen might cause them to have recurrence of endometriosis or of symptoms associated with endometriosis. The 2022 European Endometriosis Guidelines do have a short section on hormone replacement therapy, which says that clinicians should be aware that people with endometriosis who've undergone an early bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy, so that means getting both of their ovaries taken out, they have an increased risk of diminished bone density, dementia, and cardiovascular disease. It then recommends as a good practice point that clinicians continue to treat people with a history of endometriosis after surgical menopause with combined estrogen progestins at least up to the age of natural menopause. You can read more detailed information in the European guidelines under the section endometriosis and menopause. Since estrogen does have a protective effect on many aspects of our health, losing years or even decades of estrogen may have a long-term negative effect on our health if we have our ovaries removed earlier than menopause. Not to mention that that sudden plunge into surgical menopause or even the transition into natural menopause can make us suffer with a lot of miserable symptoms from being in a low estrogen state. Make sure to speak with your doctor to see if hormone replacement therapy is right for your individual case. And different factors come into play when making these decisions, such as your age, your medical history, your goals, and your symptoms of endometriosis versus your symptoms of low estrogen. And I just want to say that since I'm currently on hormone replacement therapy in perimenopause, I can tell you that there's a lot of misinformation out there about hormone replacement therapy. And many gynecologists are pretty clueless about prescribing it. So you definitely want to be prepared to educate yourself and advocate for yourself. And I linked my website's page on hormones in the show notes today, which has some resources in it. So this concludes our episode with Dr. DeLumba, and I really want to thank him for his time and for sharing his insight and ideas with us. Something I love about Dr. DeLumba is his curious mind to try and explore further into this disease. He asks hard questions, and he's very comfortable admitting that there is a lot about this disease that we just don't know. So thank you again, Dr. DeLumba, and we'll talk to you next time. <music>